break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back with you here on The Punch-Out. 10th of May, 2021, plenty for you here on the show as we always do. We'll be talking about more research I mean, there's so much research on this, but more keeps coming on how racist the U.S. justice system really is. Hidden truths that are lurking behind the unemployment statistics that were released last Friday here in the United States. But before we turn to either of those two important stories, we talk about the ongoing uprising in Colombia. Yesterday, Colombian President Ivan Duque announced he was sending 2,100 additional troops and as many as 10,000 additional cops to the city of Cali in order to quell ongoing protest. And Cali, of course, is a protest center and thus a center of repression. And in addition to sending more troops there, Duque has also overseen the imposition of all sorts of restrictive policies, including how many people can ride on a motorcycle as part of an attempt to restrict mobility within the city and tamp down protests. And before I go any further, I should just quickly shout out People's Dispatch, good friend of us here at The Punch Out, doing great coverage on Colombia that has made it possible for us to bring you more of what's really going on on the ground there in Colombia. Now, Duque made a quick visit to Cali overnight last night, saying, uh, after saying, I should say, that he would never visit the city. And he claimed when he was speaking to the press that he was open to addressing issues that have been raised by the protesters, throwing out there now that he's open to discussing free public higher education. Now, undoubtedly, this is part of his overall strategy going into a meeting today with strike leaders in the capital of Bogota to look reasonable in the face of the demands that are being put out there. Duque and his government are clearly caught between a rock and a revolt at this point, and they are desperately trying to end the protests, which all across the country have continued to draw large numbers and have interrupted the normal state of affairs in the country as huge numbers continue to gather in resistance. And the repression of these protests has, in a major way, amplified the deeply, deeply brutal nature of the Duque regime in a way that they're obviously embarrassed about. And as for the repression, it is intense. According to two human rights organizations inside of the country that have been tracking the issue, from April 28th to May 8th, the violent actions of security forces have resulted in the death of at least 47 people, the arbitrary detention of 963 people, 28 victims of eye-related injuries, 12 victims of sexual violence, and in total, they registered 1,876 cases of police violence. Repression has failed to stop the protests, as we mentioned above, because they represent deep-seated inequalities that have only gotten worse in the last year. The protests and strikes began as a part of a response to a multi-billion dollar tax hike directed at the working classes as opposed to the ultra-wealthy. 
And this is coming at a time where poverty has increased 7% since last year. 42% of the country living in poverty overall. It's 21 million people. 7 million people living in extreme poverty. 70% of people work only in the informal sector. And 87.3% of deaths from COVID-19 were of people from the three lowest strata in the income distribution there in Colombia. So the level of violence directed towards protesters is hardening people's resolve because in and of itself, it's indicative of the extremely right-wing nature of the political establishment in that country that has presided over a similar state of affairs for decades, meets any opposition with massive repression, routinely killing more social leaders than any other country on a yearly basis, and shifts the burden of any crisis to the poor and working classes. And people have clearly had enough which is why a two-day national strike has turned into an open-ended uprising that has upended the country and started to raise serious questions about the path it's been on and the path it needs to go in the 21st century. Now, it remains to be seen whether Duque will make any significant concessions or reforms, but it is notable that every couple days he seems to have to back down on this or that claim that he would not do something, that he would never withdraw the tax reform, which he did, that he wouldn't be meeting with strike leaders, which he is, that he wouldn't go to a city like Cali, where he actually went last night. Clearly, the government is struggling to hold back the tide of popular resistance, and they seem deeply fearful of the consequences of the rising movement. It seems that Colombia's leaders are learning the true meaning of the phrase, oppression breeds resistance. The April jobs report released last Friday here for the jobs numbers in the United States set off a torrent of commentary among Wall Street and corporate analysts on financial news channels and Republicans in Congress saying that the weak job growth or quote unquote weak job growth was a direct result of the expanded unemployment insurance benefits that have been offered since early in the pandemic. Now, let's just say from the start that this is, in fact, totally false. While job growth growth was below what the capitalist cheerleaders on CNBC had been expecting, it is worth noting the workforce actually grew by 430,000 workers. Now, workers are only listed as in the workforce in these stats if they're actively looking for work, which makes this a really interesting statistic because job growth was weak, but the workforce expanded. Hmm. So capitalist cheerleaders are saying that there's a labor shortage as people ride out their unemployment benefits, but that, of course, is hard to square with an increase in people looking for work. What seems to be happening is that people are returning to work or returning to looking for work very actively, but are less willing to accept jobs with poor wages and working conditions if they can afford to check out their other options for something different. Uh, Heather Long, who's a reporter with the Washington Post, brought out a very interesting piece in the Post over the weekend that involved wide-ranging interviews with many workers as well as looking at some of the stats and made a very interesting observation that more of what seems to be happening is people want to work but are reassessing where uh, that should be. One worker she interviewed noted, quote, the problem is we are not making enough money to make it worth it to go back to these jobs that are difficult and dirty and usually thankless. You're getting yelled at and disrespected all day. It's hell, end quote. Long goes on to note in her piece that another sign of this broader trend is that hourly wages are nudging up. The average hourly rate in the hospitality sector is up roughly a dollar compared to the pre-pandemic growing rate. But the bigger issue appears to be 
this is quoting from her article here, uh, appears to be that warehouses have hiked wages by more than a dollar and now pay $26 an hour on average, far more than the roughly $18 an hour average in hospitality. So you can see that what's happening there is it seems as if the economy opens back up. Areas that have seen growth during the pandemic, like warehousing, are being forced to compete for workers with leisure and hospitality industries that are growing as the economy opens back up and that people are seeing opportunities to get back out there and are looking more aggressively, but seeing all this, they don't want to just accept anything and want to go back to work in a way that they are taking the less, the least amount of risks and making the most amount of money. Now, corporations know this, and it's certainly an obvious thing that people would do to try to maximize their own well-being and living standard. And that's exactly why they are trying to create corporations that is this fake narrative around unemployment insurance. It's worth noting, by the way, that the $300 in extra benefits for unemployment was explicitly calculated to not compete with low-wage work. That was the actual rationale that was being given in Congress for why they did $300, not $400. So that's just nonsensical. It was directly calculated to make sure that people would not be able to write out their unemployment benefits without working. But nonetheless, this moment is being used as an opportunity to launch a rear guard action against robust unemployment insurance to try to put more people out on the street with no chance to survive to create the greatest pool of workers willing to take the lowest wage jobs that are out there. I mean, as they can. I mean, what else can they do? That's what they want to do. Create more people with no option than to work in the way they want them to for the wages they want them to. Capitalist, that is. And the reality about the whole thing is the economy was never as good as these corporate boosters have been making it out to be. I mean, we're still just over 8 million jobs below pre-pandemic levels. And depending on how you measure it, it's actually likely worse than that. So given the ongoing pandemic, it was always naive to expect economic indicators to just go up every month as all these, you know, economists and others were claiming in the mainstream media for the past few months. And now you have corporate America looking to use an ultimately unsurprising quote-unquote bad month to supercharge the poverty wage workforce. It's a capitalist optical illusion designed to increase their profits at the expense of everyone else. Recently, the Death Penalty Information Center did a deep dive into the history of racism and the death penalty. And I have to say, I took a look at it over the weekend, and even for someone like myself that is pretty aware of these issues, the study really had some amazing statistics that speak to the root of the death penalty as an instrument of social control. But that's something that people talk about a lot when they say the legal system, they talk about the legal system in the U.S. It's an instrument of social control. What do they mean when they say that? Well, essentially that the legal system deliberately operates in a biased way to indicate to one group that their actions, even for the same crimes, will be treated more harshly and with a lesser degree of fairness as a matter of course. And the hope is that, as a result, said population will act accordingly with more deference, or another way to put it, stay in their place. A way to think about it is to compare it to the system of lynching, used for so many years as a weapon of terror against the black population of the South. Now, one stat that just jumped out to me regarding this issue of social control was the following. Quote, the 2015 meta-analysis reviewed studies of capital charging and sentencing from across the country. The meta-analysis reported that each of the 30 studies identified found that killers of whites were more likely than the killers of blacks to face a capital prosecution. These studies cover a wide range of geographic areas and time periods and include different sets of statistical controls. End quote. And that fact was buttressed by another one. Quote, Since executions resumed in 1977, 
295 African-American defendants have been executed for the murder of a white victim, while only 21 white defendants have been executed for the murder of an African-American victim. And the study went on to note further that, quote, the vast majority of studies found that the killers of whites are sentenced to death at a higher rate than the killers of blacks. Of the 78 studies examined, 69 found significant and substantial race of victim effects, end quote. So three pretty big studies noting that if you kill a black person, the punishment seems to be lighter than if you kill a white person. Now, you might say if you wanted to counter that point, well, perhaps there's some differing level of offense that leads to this. But there are studies on this issue, too. And the broader study by the Death Penalty Information Center notes that, quote, a 2017 study analyzed the impact of homicide rates on the death sentencing rates in individual counties between 1990 and 2016. The study found that higher homicide rates were associated with higher rates of death sentencing, but this effect depended on who was being killed. Increases in the black homicide rate did not affect county-level death sentencing rates, but when more white people were killed, death sentences went up. End quote. And another study that speaks to the same issue, quote, a study of reported homicides between 1976 and 2009 found that homicides with white victims are significantly more likely to be cleared, that is solved, than are homicides with minority victims, end quote. So to sum all that up, it's a lot of numbers there, all the evidence shows that murders of white people are considered not only more serious, but particularly heinous, while murders of black people, especially by other black people, are not seen in the same way. Now, what sort of message do you think that sends? And who do you think it sends it to? A study of national homicide stats bears this out even more when it notes that, quote, black males are roughly 6% of the population, but 37% of the homicide victims. Whereas this group is by far the most likely to be victimized compared to any other group in the population, their killers have a rate of execution less than one-thirteenth that of white females, statistically the least likely of any population group to be the victim of a homicide, end quote. So in other words, if you kill a white woman, you are significantly more likely to get the death penalty than if you kill a black man, despite the fact that black males are the most likely people to be killed vis-a-vis -vis homicide. So if the message isn't clear to you at this point, I'm not even really sure what to tell you. But it's obvious here that black life does not matter in the criminal legal system. And it's not by accident, but on purpose, to send a message about who needs to stay in their place. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.